the funeral ceremony for Queen Elizabeth was held just this past Monday. I personally think that those ceremonies, those traditions that go along with state funerals like that are fascinating. The Queen was of great national significance to England and even to the rest of the world for, to, to some degree. Uh, she reigned for over 70 years. And when someone has such a significant status within a nation, most governments will provide a unique sort of significant funeral service for them. Uh, the funeral service has strict protocol, it has ritual, it has ceremony. When someone so significant dies, we want to mark the occasion with an event that reflects the significance of the person. And there's a funeral ritual that's practiced in Austria for their kings and queens that I find particularly striking. This happened last in 2011 with the funeral of Otto van Habsburg. So it was after their traditional funeral ceremony, the funeral procession, which had the mourners and the coffin, led up to the gates of the church where he would be entombed. And a herald knocked on the door outside of the church in order to gain entry so that he could be uh, laid to rest inside the church there. So the herald knocks three times, and the clergy inside ask, who demands entry? The herald responded in a very proud voice with the king's name and his titles. Otto of Austria, Crown Prince of Austria-Hungary, Prince Royal of Hungary and Bohemia, of Dalmatia, of Croatia, and he goes on listing all of the titles that this king had. The clergy inside responds, we don't know him. The herald again knocks three times and the clergy asks again, who demands entry? The herald introduces him this time as Dr. Otto van Habsburg the president of the Pan-European Union and member of the European Parliament. And so he lists off all the other civic achievements that this king accomplished in his life. The clergy inside respond, we don't know him. The herald knocks a third time. The clergy asks, who demands entry? And on the third attempt, the herald responds meekly with a sinful, mortal human being. The clergy responds, so he may come in. And they open the gates, and he's admitted into the crypt. We're getting into some of the challenging portions of Romans, Romans 9. Paul is going to make the point in today's passage that the fact that not everyone from the nation of Israel is saved, that does not mean that God is a failure. His word is not a failure. God didn't promise to save everyone. Only some of humanity, God's elect, as he called them in Romans 8.33. They will be rescued from hell and sin and reconciled to God to be in his presence forever. And that caused Paul, as we saw last week in verses one through five, it caused him great sorrow, unceasing anguish. Paul's asking why, why aren't all of Israel saved? And we ask the same question, we ask why. Why are some elect and some not? What's the distinction? between those who are saved and those who are not? What is the basis of God's election? Here are the two options, I believe. God either chose some on his own initiative based purely on the riches of his grace, or he chose some because he knew that they first would choose him. Either God elects people to salvation based on the, the condition of their foreseen faith, or he elects some unconditionally by his pure goodness 
without any consideration of their works. We'll hope to think through that with Paul this morning as we're tracking along with the argument that he's been making about the promises of God and salvation. So he's just made these huge explosive promises at the end of chapter eight about how God's elect definitely will be justified. It's that golden chain of redemption we talked about in May that we find there at the end of chapter eight. Okay, well, if he's made these big promises, his audience would be thinking, okay, Paul, if God's promises to his elect are unstoppable, why are so many of them God's elect nation, Israel, why are they not embracing the gospel? Were they not God's elect? What about the promises that God made to them in the Old Testament? Has God's word to them failed? Our big idea, God's just purposes and promises in salvation do not fail. God's just purposes and promises regarding salvation do not fail. Here's our outline, just two points. First, we must be clear on God's promises. We'll get that from verse six. And then second, God did not promise salvation for everyone. We see that in verses four through uh, 13, the end of the passage. And then we're gonna think with Paul together through the Old Testament examples that he gives us. Let's pray. Father, we do need your help this morning. Uh, help us to come under the authority of your word. Father, may we uh, come to it recognizing uh, that we need your illumination of our hearts and our minds to help us receive as good your divine word. Father, we know that you will do that for us this morning by your Holy Spirit. We're grateful for that. Help us to focus. Help us to follow your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, In verse six in particular, we must be clear on God's promises. Let me read just verse six for us again. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. We can't hold God to account for something he didn't promise to do. We cannot try to hold God to account for something he never promised to do. Again, just trying to follow the logic of Paul's train of thought here. Romans 8 lays out these massive claims to God's elective love being unstoppable. But that naturally then leads to questions about God's promises to his elect people in the Old Testament, Israel. Hopefully you know that God called Israel his chosen people. Here are just a few examples of that. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you, O Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 to 15. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. 
And of course, we went through uh, chapters uh, 40 through 55 of Isaiah throughout this summer. Those chapters are sort of radiating in the background of all of this stuff that Paul is talking about in Romans 8 through 11, at least. Isaiah is the, the counter melody to the song that Paul is singing here in Romans. So it's really helpful to know what's going on there in Isaiah. It's formative to Paul's writing uh, here. Israel is called God's chosen people there in the book of Isaiah as well. 41 verse 8. But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Over and over again, throughout even just Isaiah, I've called you by my name. You are mine. I will be with you. You are precious in my eyes. Now, if God made these promises to Israel that we understand now to have been fulfilled in the person and work of the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and yet the people to whom those promises were made aren't all saved. Well, hold on, Paul says. God never promised to save all of ethnic Israel. We read elsewhere in Isaiah, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 22. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, there's a bunch of them, only a remnant of them will return. A remnant is a small remaining quantity of something. So in other words, only some of Israel would remain faithful throughout the exile and would be restored. Isaiah 6 Uh, Because of of Israel's sin, Isaiah 6, the prophet, says because of their sin, their land is going to be utterly destroyed, and Israel would be exiled from the land. Only a tenth of them would remain. This is Isaiah chapter 6. And he says in chapter 6, verse 13 in particular, only a holy seed or a selected offspring would remain. In other words, not all who physically descended from the line of Israel, which is one of Jacob's names. Jacob is renamed Israel. Not all who are descended from the line of Israel were promised salvation. That's what he says in verse 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This verse is key to understand the rest of Romans 9 through 11. Paul uses the word Israel in at least two different ways Uh, in this passage, but in this particular verse in two distinct ways. Not all physical Israelites are a part of the faithful, believing remnant of Israel. This is what it means that not all Israel, not all who are from Israel are Israel. And then Paul's going to go on to illustrate that in the following verses, but let's just think about what this means for us uh, even momentarily. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know how or why this has anything to do with me. The Old Testament seems so distant, it's so confusing. Why does all this matter? Well, it matters to you and I because the God of Israel is the same God of the church. God has not changed. God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. It's the same God right now. So if his promises that he made to Israel have failed, how would you and I in the year 2022 have any assurance that the amazing promises that he lays out at the end of Romans 8, will be fulfilled. All those verses about our calling, our adoption, our justification and glorification, and the surety and the assurance of that. It's important to know that God's promises do not fail, but it's also important to know that we cannot try to hold God to account 
for something he never promised to do. He never promised to save all of physical, ethnic Israel. Now, have you ever grown bitter or disengaged from God because you think that he let you down somehow? This past summer, I had booked an Airbnb for my family. We were going to take a trip to San Diego, and we were going to head out for a few days. It's been a long year, and so we were really looking forward to just getting a breath there on the beach together, and we were going to serve at a summer arts festival, SAF, throughout the week in advance, and then we were going to head out right after that. Well, there was a stomach bug going around at SAF this year, and we got kind of nervous. If one of us gets sick, it's going to ruin our vacation. But we're like, no, nah, it's going to be all right. We're just going to plow through it. We're going to keep serving, keep, keep loving on people. And we made it all the way through the week without anyone in our, our house getting sick. But the night before we were set to leave, one of us came down with it. So we had to cancel our booking, our Airbnb, because nobody wants to be in a car for six hours in that condition. And we didn't buy the travel insurance. I'll be honest, there was a while where there was some pretty serious disappointment that had crept in. How could God, I'm just, I'm just being clear with you, how could, this is in my mind, how could God do this to us? We try to do the right thing and be obedient, try to work with the promise of this relief of, of a vacation at the end of this, but the light at the end of the tunnel turned out to be an oncoming train. I know this is trivial in the big picture of reality, but it was a tough pill to swallow in the moment. I was tempted towards entitlement. After all, isn't this the least that God could do? I mean, I feel like I've held up my end of the bargain, but eventually, with the passing of time and with the help of others, we started to realize that there was no bargain. God hadn't promised us a day at the beach. We aren't owed anything. And if we tried to hold him accountable for something he didn't promise, that's on us. It's not on him. Now, that's a light example, I recognize. But I know that many of you here have suffered through things that seem unreasonable. Why hasn't God given me a spouse yet? Why did I face such abuse as a child? Why do some of my closest relationships seem to sort of fall apart for no good reason? Why have I lost someone that I love to an untimely death? We look back at the end of Romans 8, we realize that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ, and he has promised that in the new heavens and the new earth, our bodies will be redeemed, we will be glorified, no longer bruised and broken by the fall. Finally, at last, in the all-satisfying presence of our Redeemer. We keep the end in mind. We ended up actually being given a trip to San Diego the following week. It was a better place than what we originally paid for, we got to go for longer than what we paid for in a better location. It was better than what we purchased and definitely better than what we expected and better than what we deserved. It was a humbling blow to my entitlement, but there was, I'm just being honest, there was a few days there where I was in the dumps because I didn't know what the future held. Something much better that we didn't earn that we didn't deserve. But even if we didn't get that trip, we wouldn't have any room to complain because God has already been better to us than we deserve. When we start to think that we are owed something based on what we've done, we really begin to lose sight of the whole concept of grace. So so many of the songs we sang this morning were focused around the concept of grace and grace alone. So let's think more about that in the next verses. Point two, 
God did not promise salvation for everyone. From verses 7 to 13, let me just read that. Uh, well, before we get in there, <clears throat> introductory note. Paul, what he's doing here in these next verses is quoting the Old Testament over and over again, using two different illustrations, grounding his argument in history and scripture. He uses two examples of how God didn't promise blessing to everyone who came from Abraham. So he brings up Isaac, and he alludes to Ishmael, and then he compares Jacob and Esau. First, though, let's look at, at Isaac 2a. The children of promise were called through Isaac, not Ishmael. Verses 7 through 9, I'll just read those again. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Isaac was the child of promise, not Ishmael. Isaac was the child of promise, not Ishmael. Now we, we all know that Father Abraham stands at the beginning of the history of Israel. God chose him out of the nations. He promised to bless him, to make him a blessing to the other nations, to provide him land, to make him fruitful, to give him numerous offspring. But Abraham and his wife Sarah were starting to get a little bit old. They started to think, well, maybe God forgot about those promises. So they came up with the idea that Abraham could just have a child with their, their servant, Hagar. That way, Abraham would still have children like God promised. And so Abraham fathered a child with Hagar named Ishmael. But later, God said to Abraham, no, Sarah, your wife is going to become pregnant and you should call this child that you're going to have Isaac. Even though Sarah was well past childbearing age, she was going to have a child. So in the sense, Isaac's birth was going to be miraculous or supernatural. A birth according to God's promise, not according to the will of man. And God would establish his covenantal love with Isaac and his offspring after him. Now, Ishmael would be blessed physically. We can read more about the, the history of the promises that God did give to Ishmael. But God would establish his covenant love only with Isaac, not Ishmael. This is Genesis chapters 17 and 18. Ishmael was born of the will of man. Isaac was born of the will of God. And so here you have an example of a child of Abraham who does not belong to God's chosen people. This is the example that Paul is laying out for us. Physically, Ishmael was a child of Abraham, yet he was not a child according to the promise that God had given. Chapters 9 through 11 of Romans deal with some difficult topics. And there are some different interpretations of what Paul is arguing for here. Some will say that Paul has moved on from talking about individual salvation to talking now about corporate salvation. So at the end of chapter 8, he was talking about the individual calling and justification, but then he changes the topic to talk about no longer individuals, but nations, corporate election here. They see a huge shift between the conversation in chapter 8 and chapter 9. But that doesn't seem to do justice to the flow of Paul's argument here. It's worth noting Chapter 9, verse 7, he writes, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's what the ESV translation says. The word behind, named there in the original, is actually 
called. It's literally called. Through Isaac shall your offspring be called. It's the same word that comes up just a few verses before at the end of Romans 8, 28 and 30. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Same word. And in 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. For those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you remember, again, from, from May, we talked about that golden chain of salvation from those verses. Those whom he calls, he also justifies. It's the same language. It's the same thing. So just like in 9, Romans 9, verse 11, God called Jacob, not according to works, so that his purpose of election might continue. So I just want you to notice the continuity between chapter 8 and chapter 9 here. This is the same argument that he's making here. It seems best to recognize that this passage isn't only talking about electing nations for earthly blessings. It seems that he's writing about individuals within Israel who aren't saved. And he's trying to explain why that's the case. Well, you might say, well, of course Ishmael's not a part of the blessed uh, covenant community. We already know that. Nobody ever thought that Ishmael was part of Israel. But what about the rest of the line of Isaac? Well, great, well, Paul goes there next to be. The children of promise were called through Jacob and not Esau. Through Jacob, not Esau. Verses 10 through 13 again. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob was the child of promise, not Esau, is what we see in these verses. Jacob was the child of promise and not Esau. Maybe this visual will help you. We start out with Father Abraham, who had some sons, is Ishmael and Isaac, and then even beyond that, we have Esau and Jacob, okay? So we're just trying to explain all those who descend physically from Abraham, the ones that are kind of grayed out, not a part of the blessings. This is visually what Paul is telling us here. Not only so, in verse 10 of our ESV translation, is, is more like, not only that, or like, here's actually a, a, a stronger argument than that first one that I just gave to you. This is different because Jacob and Esau were both children of Isaac, who was the child of promise. And yet, God only chose Jacob to continue the line of blessing rather than through Esau. They were both born to the same parents. They were twins. And Esau was actually born first. This is important. It was before they were born and had done nothing either good or bad that God set his love upon Jacob and hated Esau. This is, seems counterintuitive because Esau is born first. Esau was the firstborn. He should have gotten the blessing. And yet God extended his covenantal love to Jacob and not to Esau. This is a quotation from the first chapter of the book of Malachi. Uh, the prophet Malachi there at the end of the Old Testament was dealing with the relationship between the nations. He was talking about Israel and Edom. This is helpful to keep in mind. Jacob was going to be renamed Israel. So those who descend from Jacob are going to be called the nation of Israel. 
And yet those who descended from the line of Esau are called the Edomites. Those are the people that Malachi is talking about in chapter 1. And so the prophet is telling them that God is going to defend Israel, his chosen people, by destroying the Edomites, whom he did not set his covenant love upon. But Paul draws on that verse, that historical context, he pulls that, pulls that verse in here in Romans 9 to illustrate his point here in Romans. That God is able to freely choose who he wants to bless. God is able to freely choose who he wants to bless. Now, if you're like most people, you might be struck by what is said here. God hated Esau. We read similar things like this elsewhere, like in Psalm 5, 5, it says God hates all evildoers. But it's actually a little more complicated here in, in Romans because Paul is very explicit that God's purpose of election here was not based on anything good or bad that either of them had done. Esau hadn't committed actual sin yet. He wasn't an evildoer in that sense. And yet, God hated him. It seems best to understand God hating Esau to mean that we, he, he withheld his covenantal love from him. As we, as we know with Ishmael, God does still bless Esau in a physical way. Esau lived a pretty good, good life. God gave him children and possessions and livestock. But God did not extend his saving covenantal love to Esau. He rejected him. And that can be tough to swallow. Some have tried to soften this by saying that the word hate here simply means that he loved Esau less than Jacob. But there is a way to say, Esau I loved less, both in Greek and in Hebrew, and that's not what Scripture says. So how do we come to terms with what it actually says? Well, we have to start by remembering that God is different from us. So, so don't picture up a picture of like a, a red-faced human who's flown off the handle, the angry, passionate hatred. This hatred is not a passion that was aroused by anything outside of God himself. But I think it's useful, obviously scripture uses it, as an accurate way to describe his disposition towards Esau. This hatred is in no way sinful, like human hatred so often is in our experience. As with all God is and does, his hatred and his love are pure and holy and undefiled. Now you might think, well, that sounds pretty arbitrary. It sounds unjust to choose some for salvation and not others, not based on their works, but only based on his own purposes. And so some want to pull, that makes you uncomfortable, and some just want to pull away from that discomfort and say, well, I find it distasteful for God to do that, and so I need to find a different way to read this or to explain this. But just as in every other passage, we need to bring ourselves under God's authority, not trying to assert our authority over his word. And this may be uncomfortable. It actually should be if you rightly understand it, but it is what it says. We must let God's word speak to it to us as it does not as we would prefer. If we bring into the Bible, in our reading of the Bible, an assumption that God is somehow obligated to extend his saving love to everyone in the exact same way, we're going to be frustrated by what we find in the Bible. This assumption might be built on an idea that, by default, humanity comes into the world as morally neutral beings. We're just sort of innocent, blank slates. And God then is naturally pleased with us by default. 
It's the starting point. But Ephesians 2.3, for example, says that we are by nature children of wrath. After our fall in Adam, after the fall and before redemption in Christ, humanity's default position is to sit under the just judgment of God. Remember what Jesus says in John 3.16 and following. John 3.16 all the way through 18. I'll read that for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now listen to this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus affirms this again in verse 36 of John 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Robert Haldane was a Scottish preacher and commentator from the 1800s, and he summed up what we find here well. So I'll just show you what he said. Quote, In loving Jacob, God showed him unmerited favor and acted toward him in mercy. And in hating Esau, He showed him no favor, who was entitled to none, and acted according to justice. We are tempted to think that God would only be just if he showed both his love to Jacob and Esau in equal, symmetrical ways. But the reality is that if God gave justice equally to both parties here, he would have hated both. That's the default position. God is not obligated to love rebellious creatures. That's why when God does extend his unassailable, undefeatable love that we read about in the end of Romans 8, it's called grace. It is undeserved in any way. The funeral ritual of the Habsburg monarchy in Austria, I think, is a helpful reminder of this. Your entrance into the presence of God isn't conditioned on your lineage. You didn't have to come from a monarchy. It's not conditioned on whether or not you were a king or queen on this earth. It's not conditioned on your achievements or accomplishments or good works. What qualifies you is the recognition that you are a sinful, mortal human being who is despaired of saving himself or herself. Entrance into the presence of God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, our statement of faith at Trinity doesn't prescribe specifics, details about the doctrine of election. There are godly, earnest Christians who will disagree on the details within the bounds of acceptable orthodoxy. So we should be able to be free to disagree and belong to the same church. But I would be disingenuous if I stood up here and presented them all as if I believed that they were equally true. So to the best of my ability to discern I believe these verses, in harmony with the testimony of Scripture elsewhere, teach that God elects some to salvation unconditionally, according to his own good purposes, that is to say, not according to their works, including any act of faith that God God might look into the future and, and find. If you have questions about this, or you just want to think about it in more depth, please check out the video and the handouts that we did. It was a five week class that we did in January earlier this year on the doctrines of salvation. We'll think about it in more depth uh, there. And we'll be coming to this topic again more next Sunday as Romans 9 continues.
If hearing that God elects some and not others to salvation, not based on their works, sounds unjust, even for a moment, well, then it seems like you're reading the passage correctly. It seems like you're actually tracking with the argument. Because Paul anticipates that question in the very next verse. It's verse 14 of chapter 9. And he replies, of course, that there is no injustice on God's part. But that's next Sunday, Lord willing. Let me just try to recap what we've, what we've covered here. God promised at the end of chapter 8 that nothing will separate those whom he calls from the love of Christ. That is a sure promise. Okay, well, what about Israel? They were God's elect people, and yet they didn't believe in the Messiah. Did God's promises, did his word, did it fail? No, Paul says, because from the beginning, God didn't promise that every physical child of Abraham would be saved. Only the spiritual children of Abraham who are born not of the will of man, but of the will of God. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that the children of the spiritual children of Abraham are those who believe in Christ. God's just purposes and promises in salvation do not fail. We know uh, that Esau was more concerned to satisfy his empty belly in the moment rather than to, to wait and receive God's blessings that would come later. And he ended up being described as a godless man. But let's also be honest about Jacob, shall we? Jacob ended up a con man. He was a swindler. He was tricksy, always out for his own personal gain. And when his brother Esau was hungry, Jacob prepared a meal for him. He prepared this meal in order to trick him out of his birthright. He took on the identity of Esau. He even dressed in his robes in order to try to steal his father's blessing selfishly for himself. And yet Jesus, the true and better Israel, took on the identity of his brothers and wore our unrighteousness to take away our curse so that we might share in his father's blessing. And he prepares a meal for us in the Lord's Supper in order to help us share in the benefits that he received and wants to distribute to us. I'll invite up those who would distribute communion for us now. I'll invite the musicians up as well, if you wouldn't mind.